Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're, we're getting to the end of our structured study of jhana. This sutta is the Yasa Sutta. And it relates, it's not a direct teaching on jhana, although there's parts of it that are. Uh, but in general, it teaches us the reason why we deepen concentration, so that we can avoid attaching things that are not part of the path, even though they might seem... Um, uh, compassionate or in some way hierarchical in, in the realm of spiritual achievement, etc., etc. Uh, and this teaching is just keeping it focused on what it is, using the limiting aspects of the Eightfold Path as they're intended. <coughs> Excuse me. The Yasa Sutta. <clears throat> <coughs> the Buddha was teaching in Inkanagala. The locals all knew of the Buddha as a rightly self-awakened human being who was unexcelled as a teacher and whose teachings are entirely useful and practical. These locals were a close-knit, a close-knit group who depended on their group for direction and guidance rather than the Buddha's direct teachings in parentheses. And the reason why that's significant is that is how much of modern Buddhism is today. Um, but, um, Tom, you made a, a, a mention of this even in your edits, and thank you for your edits. Uh, they were excellent. Uh, with the line, Buddhism by common, common agreement, that doesn't that lead, need a footnote? And yes, it does. What it means, a phrase that I use often, is that much of modern Buddhism is just that. It's Buddhism by modern agreement, meaning that my particular group might take a little bit of this teaching and a little bit of that teaching and maybe a little bit of poetry and a little bit of visualization, a little bit of engagement, you know, and all of this stuff, and we'll, we'll cobble it together and call that practice Buddhism. When really all it is is just a piece of this and that, and none of those practices have anything rooted in what the Buddha taught. But just because of association, as you'll see, was common during the Buddhist time and common during our time, that there's enough people that look around and everybody's saying Buddhism, Buddhism, Buddhism. Okay, I'm practicing Buddhism and this is my group. And that's fine. People can, can believe that all they want. The only thing that I'm establishing here is that the Buddha taught something different than that. And that's how it should be approached. So... This group prepared a feast with many delicacies for the Buddha and his Sangha, meaning they were trying to impress the Buddha and his Sangha with this lavish dinner. They approached the Buddha's dwelling and began making a noisy racket to, to get attention. The Venerable Nagita was attending the Buddha. The Buddha asked Nagita what the racket was all about. Nagita said, Great teacher, those are the locals who have brought many delicacies to honor you and the Sangha. So the Buddha's response is surprising. He said, Naguta, Nagita, I do not seek honor or recognition. So right off the bat, he is teaching the locals and also teaching those in his original Sangha that do not see me this way. I am not some great teacher that you should elevate above your own uh, place in the world by thinking I deserve 
these types of honors and this type of special spread, the special dinner. Nagita, I do not seek honor or recognition. That is the first spiritual teacher during the Buddhist time to ever say that. Because every other spiritual teacher that I've come across, there might have been others that I haven't from 2,600 years ago, but everyone that I've come across has used their spiritual knowledge as a, a way of establishing their fame or their notoriety. And also to increase their wealth. Everyone. And that is true to a certain extent with every other teacher that I've come across, even if it's very subtle. And that's, that's again, it's not right or wrong. They're all human beings, we're all human beings, and we're all subject to greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. The Buddha, again, the Gita, I do not seek honor or recognition. Whoever cannot obtain through their own understanding, again, not through, not through prayer, not through honor, not through visualization, through their own understanding and with ease, as I did, the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of self-awakening, self-awakening, let them consent to this common pleasure, this dulling pleasure, this pleasure born of gain and of receiving offerings and fame. Meaning, that's, that's for them. Let them have it. I'm going to skip over some commentary. Then the Gita says, Great teacher, please relent now. The locals will follow you because of your virtue and understanding. Again, Nagita, I do not seek honor or recognition. Whoever cannot obtain through their own understanding, with ease, as I do, the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of self-awakening, let them consent to this common pleasure, meaning keep, it, keep going, that's what you want, this dulling pleasure, this pleasure born of gain and of receiving offerings and fame. If that's what your Dhamma practice is relying on, receiving offerings, receiving fame, being noticed for your, your great Buddhism and all your great knowledge and your great meditation practice and all the rest of it, if that's what you're seeking, that's not Dhamma practice. Because all of that is rooted in eye-making. It's taking your, your practice that is designed to liberate you from your own ignorance that type of practice can only continue. And that's why the Buddha is making this point right off the bat. He's saying these folks aren't ready because of the way they're approaching the Dhamma. They're looking at it as something to add to their own ignorance rather than something to recognize and abandon all of their ignorance and manifestations. Nagita continues, There are many who are unable to develop the understanding with ease that leads to pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of self-awakening. When people all live together, I'm sorry, these are the Buddha's words, when people all live together, assemble together, and live committed to dwelling within a group, they are unable to develop understanding with ease, which is why they live together, assemble together, and live committed to dwelling with a group. In other words, they, they take... Um, safety in the group, even though the group is, is, is uninformed. And because of that association, they are unwilling to let go of it because of self-identification. It's the basic Dhamma practice, the basic teaching of the Buddha, is don't take anything personal, including these associations with groups that have nothing to do with what the Buddha taught. Again, it's, it's from 2,600 years ago, the remarkable relevance today 
I think it's obvious to, to those of us here, but it, it's remarkable to me when I first read this because I said, yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been bouncing from one association to another association to another association and, gra- and dragging all these other practices into this new practice that I hope would give me some kind of magical release from my own ignorance. The Buddha says, Nagita, when I see a community delighting in their interactions, laughing loudly, grabbing at one another, again, substituting a social engagement for actual understanding, the Buddha says, I know that they will not be able to develop the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of self-awakening, which is why they are delighting in their interactions, laughing loudly, and grabbing at one another. They're doing it to maintain their ignorance. Their ignoble association is what they're using to maintain ignorance. And I did it for many years. As an ardent Buddhist practitioner, in every lineage that I joined, and including the lineage that I took my vows in, I took it seriously. And I associated with that group. And that group group was the right group until it became the wrong group until I realized that it was my association that I was counting on to deliver me, not gaining any kind of real understanding, not looking at myself, but just believing that my association with so-and-so and such a teaching was all that I needed to do. And that then became the, the additional stress that I created in my life because this teaching and that teaching and that teaching and that teaching weren't doing it for me. They weren't giving me any type of understanding. They certainly weren't deepening my concentration. Then there are those communities who revel in food, eating as much as they want, who take pleasure in sensory contact, pleasure in lying down, pleasure in dullness. I know that they will not be able to develop the pleasure of renunciation, etc., etc. And taking pleasure from sensory contact, from lying down, from lying down with dullness. And so what is that a reflection? It's a reflection of the gluttony of human of humanity. That we think that there's a that the reward for for me my reward for living in the world and doing the good things that I do is a lavish spread with a lot of food, all the food that I want, all the all the, the all the sexual relationships I might want, all the all the golf I might want, all the TV I might want all the Dhamma teachings I might want, all, 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 more and more and more. It just leads to laziness and dullness. When we limit ourselves through the Eightfold Path to life as life occurs, then each and every moment is a fulfilling moment. We don't need it to be more because we realize there can't be any more. This is what's occurring. Then there are those who attempt to develop concentration in a community where disturbance is likely, meaning it's not focused on deepening concentration. This, I know, is not conducive to developing the Dhamma. So another practice, such as maybe a chanting practice, there's no way to develop concentration in a chanting practice, is there? Although I have some students that insist that there is. They, in other words, they're continuing with their Dhamma practice, but they still include chanting as part of their practice. And they're getting to a certain point and going no further, and they're not willing to let that go because that's how there are other associations. Uh, practice. But those that have found the root of a tree or an empty hut, developing jhana meditation as taught, 
well secluded, even though they may be drowsy, hi Dominic, they will dispel with their drowsiness and mindful, they will, they will dispel their drowsiness and be mindful of their seclusion by simply engaging in right meditation or jhana meditation. Then there are those who, has, who have established seclusion and are not well concentrated. Meditating in seclusion, they will quickly develop concentration and will protect their concentration using the right method. They will end their distracted mind and be mindful of their seclusion. Again, the Buddhist is saying, just use the right method. Then there are those that have established seclusion and are well concentrated. They will develop clinging release. They will, re- they will develop release from clinging to their fabricated views. The Buddha is now describing right meditation, jhana meditation, as it deepens. They have found the benefit from seclusion. Then there are those who cling to a group and takes food, clothes, shelter, and recognition from the group and become enamored with the group. Again, the group becomes more important and your socialization becomes more important and what you're getting from that group becomes more important than understanding. And so they do not establish seclusion and will not end distraction. One of the reasons why I run uh, my classes this way, but also Cross River Meditation Center in person, is we don't, um, our, our classes are just like this. We come together, we gather in person a few minutes before class, maybe 15 minutes before class, and usually our talks are focused around the Dhamma if we're talking at all, and then we meditate, jhana meditation, then we have a, a sutta, something that the Buddha actually taught, and then we keep our discussion on that sutta. And then we leave. We don't have social. We don't socialize after class. We might talk a little bit. You know, we might even talk about that class. Excuse me. But the structure of our classes is just the class. We're here. We gather for the dharma. Once the class is over. We say our goodbyes and we go back out into the world. Occasionally, we do things as a sangha. We go out to dinner once in a while, usually twice a year uh, as a sangha. We're doing something this Saturday as a sangha. Um, But for the most part, we gather as a sangha to practice the Dhamma and not much else. The Gita, then there are those well-established in seclusion who receives food, clothes, shelter, and recognition from a group. Knowing the benefit of seclusion and restraint, no disturbance will arise in them. So the same occurrence to a mind that is well concentrated and well secluded will not give in to that, into the, into the need for, for introducing a social aspect to their Dhamma practice. Now remember, all this developed in the original Sangha that lived together. And yet one of the rules established, one of the, the part of the Patimoksha, was the Buddha said, when you're gathered as a Sangha, you speak only of the Dhamma. So there's other suttas, the Anapanasati Sutta is one that comes to mind, where the Buddha recognizes that the group, the Sangha, is sitting quietly. And he, he praises them for their great silence, for being able to sit quietly. And most of us can't do that. If you, you, most of us out in public would find it very uncomfortable to sit quietly next to another person without gabbing. We, we, we were able to sit quietly. 
But out in the world, two people who are not well concentrated can't sit and not talk to each other. They have to, or they get very uncomfortable. Because they don't know the benefit of seclusion and restraint. And when knowing the benefit of seclusion and restraint, no disturbance will arise in them, no matter what, what situation we're in. That's the end of the sutta. So, again, the importance of this sutta is keeping our Dharma practice focused, keeping our meditation focused on just this one thing, on developing meditation concentration so that we can hold in mind the refined mindfulness of the limiting factor of the Eightfold Path. So again, that's today's talk. Dominic, what do you think? Well, like Tom, I also had a, a distraction, but not quite as brutal. Uh, my wife was having a conversation on the phone and, you know, I was trying to ignore it and just breathe in, breathe out. But after 10 minutes, it it was too much, you know? Yeah. So I went there and closed the door and came back and I was, you know, I felt I was getting angry at her, you know, anger arose. And I thought, wow, I, I don't, I'm a pretty quiet man. Otherwise, you know, I don't say much. So this is my chance to, to talk about the things that I'm interested in once a week. And I thought, how does, doesn't she realize that? Why doesn't she stay quiet and leave me alone for this one hour? But after that, I just realized what I'm doing. And I just smiled and said, okay, no. Mindfully breathe in, yeah. mindfully breathe out. And after uh, you took a couple of breaths, you didn't need your wife to be any different than she was, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so you recognize the disturbance was in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, the other thing you were talking about, uh, these teachings about the Buddha, uh, I don't know why, but it reminded me, uh, Tom, you probably know him, uh, Ben Fogel. Uh, he's a he's a like this British TV presenter or whatever. He has this show where uh, he uh, seeks out people who are secluded, who got tired of society and just you know went to live in secluded places. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time he was uh, I think it is in, in Taiwan, no uh, Thailand I think. Uh, he visited a Buddhist monk, a Theravada monk was living in the jungle like alone very secluded uh, and his problem was that he wasn't getting enough uh, nutrients you know he, he ate bananas some rice and it caused problems for his health you know and so he decided to grow a little garden so he can have vegetables and stuff like that you know and he was getting a lot of uh, upset uh, callings from his fellow Buddhist that the Buddhists shouldn't, you know, uh, do gardening because it's there's I don't know there's a there's a law against it or whatever. And I, you know, I don't know why, but this reminded me of this. You know, uh, when you said that just because you say it's Buddhist teachings doesn't mean it's Buddhist teachings. I think Buddhist teachings are meant to be practical. Yeah. So, and I've read a lot about this, especially Western 
people who go to the, these Buddhist temples, especially in, to Theravada. And uh, I remember one guy describing them as, uh, you know, being again born Christians. They get ecstatic and they want to tell everyone what is what is real Buddhism and what is fake Buddhism and they are quite aggressive doing that, you know. And they were the same with this Buddhist guy, you know. He was just trying to to live modesty. He he didn't hurt anyone. Yeah. And still they were attacking him. And I just thought, well, okay, you might say you're Buddhist, but that's definitely not the path that the Buddha taught, you know. So. I don't know why, but talking to you about these Buddhists not wanting recognition uh, reminded me of that, you know, that uh, there are a lot of Buddhists that have nothing to do with Buddha's teachings. Yeah. They're way too aggressive and loud and uh, <clears throat> I don't know. It's just, you know, when, I, when, when you talk, I sometimes I just feel... I ask myself if it is even real, you know, because so much thing you say is, are my beliefs also, and I haven't across uh, come across them at other teachers, you know. Everyone, as you said, other teachers require that you praise them and uh, obey them without questioning and stuff like that, you know. And when you're talking, it's like, wow, it's it's like, you know, listening to my thoughts. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I like it too. I I like the uh, uh, so let me let me I'll I'll respond in a very self-aggrandizing way. I like being nobody because most of my life I had to be somebody, and that sucked because I never could be that somebody. You know, it was always it was always something that I couldn't. I, you've heard me talk about it often. I, I had to play center field for the Yankees, except I was never taller than 5'8". And you don't play center field for the Yankees at 5'8". And also I was slow of foot, so I had no no chance. But yet I decided that was who I needed to be in this life to be happy. And it was it was awful. It was pure torture that I was doing to myself. But um, there's a lot of that type of thinking around most people that would say that if you're a, that a, a Buddhist must be a vegetarian. Every Buddhist is a vegetarian. And it's simply not true, not even during the Buddhist time. In fact, the Buddha would admonish some of the early monks who would come back from their alms rounds and they would, they would brag that so-and-so offered them a piece, of, a piece of meat and they wouldn't take it. And the Buddha would literally admonish them, saying, those people were seeking something from you and they gave you the only thing they could in, in exchange for your teaching and you threw it in their face. And that was made. That was a point. So, the Buddha never taught that we sh- that we we should all be vegetarians, but he did teach mindfulness and that we should be mindful of what we're doing, like that monk did. You know, who was he harming growing vegetables? Except there were some people that thought, well, he's probably killing some bugs, and so we shouldn't be doing that, or some other reason why. Um, all of this that it's such a self-referential way of living in the world that the Buddha said that's a confining space. You know, we can do everything, anything we want, knowing in liberation that it's going to be harmless if it's framed by the Eightfold Path. And that's where the great, that's where liberation comes from. That's where my liberation comes from. Is I know that if I'm acting within this framework, if I'm engaged in this moment with, in right speech, right action, and right livelihood, I can't do any harm to myself or others. And that's liberation. That's the only place that liberation can reside. 
is in that one thought. I am not going to hurt myself and I'm not going to hurt anyone else. I'm free. Because, again, it's, it's, a, it's a deep psychological uh, explanation, but we can all relate to that, can't we? You know, just, just living in, with, without conflict in my mind. It's, it's remarkable. You know? so, and I'm the greatest teacher of all time, so there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Hello, but, Tom. You know, you did, uh, you did it again. Now, talking about uh, vegetarians, I, I feel exactly the same way, you know. I know that Buddha didn't say you must be a vegetarian, but other teachers, they say, no, if you want to join our Sangha, you must be vegetarian. So, yeah. again, that's, that's violence. You're forcing me to do something I'm not ready that's to right. do. And that cannot be Buddha's teachings, you know? Yeah, they're all the, the uh, uh, one of the, the, uh, the paramitas uh, is avoid killing or taking life, but, but you have to understand it in context. If we just made that a blanket statement right now, and it was enforced across the planet, whole societies would starve to death in a matter of a couple of weeks because they reside, they, re, they need animal flesh to eat. So that's not, obviously that's not an admonition against anybody killing an animal. But we should do things mindfully. Am I killing an animal just so I can hang it on my wall? Well, that's something as a mindful Buddhist I probably will stop doing. But if my family needs some food and the only way I can get it is to harvest something from the planet, then I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be free of any kind of, of self-recriminations about it. Because that's, that's what the Buddha taught. He taught a reasonableness living in the world. He didn't even teach people not, not to kill other people when he knew it was inevitable. He just said, I'm talking about leaders and wars, he just told those people, when you win... Take care of the people that you're victor over. That's all. Because he knew it was ridiculous to say, no, 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 you can't kill anybody. So anyway, <laughs> that's such a good talk that we're having. Tom, what do you think? Hey, Tom. Uh-oh, I hope you didn't get it. Ah, there sorry, you are. Sorry, sorry, no. I was on mute. I was on mute. Oh. Um, yes, so, um, well, I can see the, um, the, how this Sutta spoke to me was more on, um, you know, it, it, it ties in with what I was sharing at the very beginning of the class, where I'm sort of live and, you know, yet the reality is that all of these places that I look for, however sort of um attractive they may be in one way or another they they are all kind of um you know almost false um what's the word it's like a an, there's an, an allure of of these places right which is at the end of the day not going to um uh you know not not going to bring me towards um awakening um, so I guess that's how it, that's how it spoke to me. You, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, cause I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look at the, the there were certain lines in particular that, that were, um, quite, you know, quite, quite interesting and quite, and, and got me quite reflective. Um, what's, I mean, maybe just as a question, because it does place a lot of 
focus on 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 the sangha um and you know being it, or at least it speaks about the sort of the dangers i think of being in the wrong kind of groups right groups yep. that are looking for um distractions and are um you know not essentially not never going to awaken because they're looking for pleasure and and satisfaction in the wrong places yes. um what what sort of advice do you have for myself and dominic and other people that are quite far from you and your sangha i mean i i i i mean, i would i would love to live in new jersey you know and and be that much more connected to the sangha uh, um do you or or would you say that it doesn't make much difference i mean the the online experience that we have as in you know joining joining the weekly um uh, uh, talks engaging in discussion like we're doing now um and then and then you know is there a huge amount of difference between the experience that we have of the sangha and people who are actually living in frenchtown and able to join in person because you did also say that that you're even when you meet in person you know you, you meditate you have a talk you share and reflect and then you go home mm-hmm. so uh, am i kind of making more of this than there is i mean is it, it um is the experience that we're having online from a sangha community perspective quite similar to what 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 would happen if we were living in french um, it, does that it it is yeah, tom I, I um articulated that yeah you did I, I, you, you articulated it perfectly uh well um optimally i don't think there's any substitution for getting together in person uh we have people that that join regularly in Frenchtown who only live a few towns away. And, and so they're finding it much more convenient to just zoom in. But I will tell you that I, I think their progress would be quicker if they would come in person. But I, and it, it's one of those things that I, that I find um, that I don't, I make suggestions, but I would never tell anybody you better get your ass here. Because the motivation needs to come from them anyway. I, I know that didn't answer your question. I think it, it's best if you can join in person. But I've also taught people like you and like Dominic that developed a Dhamma um, as intended just via Zoom. You know, Jeff usually joins us on Thursday. He's, I've never met him in person. Uh, he lives almost on the other side of the country. And yet he seems to be de- developing the Dhamma um, as well as can be expected. The important thing, most important thing, is what the Buddha is talking about, seclusion, is that you keep your practice focused on this, <coughs> excuse me, and nothing else. And I think that's really the challenge of not having um, a physical Sangha to attend. Because those that come to class are able to create an association with the Sangha, which is supportive. But... Uh, you, you remind me of Moggallana. Uh, Moggallana and Saraputta both came to Siddhartha Gautama at the same time. They were both uh, had so, similar experiences that Siddhartha had, wandering around northern India trying to find a teacher that could teach them. And they finally came across the Buddha. And within two weeks, 
again, they put a lot of practice and self-reflection, but within two weeks of listening to Siddhartha teach them, they became rightly self-awakened. For the next 45 years, Saraputi became a very important person who the Buddha would often um, ask to teach the Sangha, much like I'm going to be doing with you soon, Tom. <laughs> Moggallana, on the other hand, preferred a, a, a very secluded life. And, and, and so he lived most of his life out in the forest, but still connected to the local Sangha. And every now and then, the Buddha would call Moggallana in from seclusion in from the forest and say here's a teaching i want you to give so the point that i'm making is that <laughs> doesn't really it's not really a point it's best if you can join us in person but since you can't you can develop the dhamma just as well this way um but again that's up to you you're the one that's having the experience if you're thinking of moving i would tell you to just you know move out here no i'm just kidding <laughs> Um, let me just, let me just, uh, something else that I just, well, I mean, if you're really thinking of moving, come on, it's not a bad place to live, although it is probably as expensive as the UK. Um, so you've heard me say ending conflict in your mind, then you can, then you're not contributing to the conflict in the world. Be mindful, Tom, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but there could be a subtle aspect of it that you're not trying to move away from yourself. You know, again, the Buddha talks about these wise associations, but ultimately it's what we're associating with in our minds. And so if I'm moving to Spain to resolve some conflict that I'm not willing to look at in the United Kingdom, it's just going to follow you. And again, I don't know if you're doing it. You might not even know if you're doing that. That being said, there's nothing wrong with finding a nice place to live. As long as you're not doing that to resolve an issue. You know, so I would say if you're moving to Spain, not I shouldn't say it like that. If you're moving to Spain for entirely practical reasons, such as it only costs me half to live here, that makes sense. But if you're moving to Spain because it only costs half to live here, and I don't think that I can afford, you know, that I'm not, I'm not uh, strong enough or skillful enough to make the money it takes to live in the UK, then that might be something to look at. You know, what what is your what is your real intention here? Is it rooted in craving for and clinging to something rooted in ignorance of four noble truths? Or is it simply you just want to live in Spain? And they're, you know, they, it, again, it all comes down to your intention. That's a good, very good question. So yeah, you, you, you probably can't answer it, Tom, but, but think about that. You know, what is your intention for doing yeah. this? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, a, it's very, very good very good point. And if your it's intention isn't clear about. and you decide, I'm sorry to interrupt you, if your intention isn't clear and you decide to move to Spain anyway, you'll find out. Yeah. And it won't, and, and since you learned to be gentle with yourself, that's okay. And now I'm going to stop interrupting you for a few minutes anyway. No, 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 that's, that's, I don't have much more to add other than I have tried to there's definitely an element of, of clinging or craving there. I think just that, you know, but, but then how much of that is a kind of just a reasonable, you know, sort of wish to live somewhere a bit nicer and nicer climate, you know, things yeah. like that. Um, but, but I'm trying to look at it also from the perspective of, um, you know, what gives me the best chance of awakening? <laughs> 
you know, ah. um, and and that's where I start to think, well, you know, maybe there's some some sort of attraction that, that Spain has, which actually takes me further from awakening, possibly. I, I don't know. I don't know. I have to reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, and so look at it this way. The, the Buddha left the palace, you know, the, the most comfortable place for him on earth, in order to go live in the woods with nothing to develop the Dhamma. But he didn't teach people how to do that. And again, he, he taught, Anathapandika comes to mind. You know, he was, a, he was a householder and a businessman. Took, he took to the Dhamma, he awakened, and he stayed in business, you know, throughout his life. And he became an important part of the original Sangha. His, his being in the business world allowed him to support the Buddha and the Sangha. Um, and he's one of the actors that are responsible for us having the Dhamma today because of that. So there's um, just like there's, there's no good in sitting and sleeping on a bed of nails. Just use that as an example. People taught, you know, some, somehow you could control your mind if you could get past sleeping on a bed of nails or walking on fire and those kind of things. None of those matter. None of the external circumstances matter as long as we're practicing this Dhamma. But would it be easier for you to develop the Dhamma in Spain in a quiet place that maybe you don't have to be worried about financing as much and this and that? Maybe so. I can't answer that. And that so those practical things might make it reasonable to move to Spain. But again, if you're moving to Spain to get away from something that's lacking in Tom, not going to work. But it won't hurt either. You know, you might yeah. find yourself just as confused or frustrated after your move to Spain, like, you know, say six months from now. Okay, so then you found that out. You can't do any wrong. You know, that's the one thing we should, we should get, you know, understand that no matter, I shouldn't say that, we... As long as we're not hurting other people and hurting ourselves directly, you really can't do any harm here or do, do any wrong because you'll find out. Um, what's most important is the quality of your mind in this moment. And is it free of conflict? If it's not, that's what you take to your cushion and that's what you bring to the Eightfold Path. So do that. <laughs> Great reminder, John. Thank you. Yeah, and it, it, that, that is basic practice. Um, but you're right to look at it this way, Tom. You're, you're, in essence, you're asking me, but really you're asking yourself, how do I apply the Dhamma to this very significant aspect of my life, moving from one country to another? You should be applying the Dhamma that way, and it should be just like this, you know? Um, I'm, I'm moving soon uh, from here, and my thoughts are, I want to try to find another place that's just as quiet as this because that's important to me. But if I don't, I don't. You know, I'm still going to practice the Dhamma. So, it, one of the one of the great things about the Dhamma is it is meant to be applied in throughout all of our human experiences. It really doesn't matter what's occurring, but we have to understand that it's not um, developing a Dhamma is not. Um, dependent on outside circumstances, but it can be supported by our outside circumstances by finding the root of a tree or an empty hut. Yeah. So that's the, that's the teaching. Um, any other uh, questions sure. or comments? Appreciate that. 
Okay, that's enough for today, I think. Lots to think about, but yeah, thank you. Yeah, and as you think about it, you and Dominic, please be gentle with yourselves. Because you're not going to go anywhere unless you are. (laughs) I mean, I found that from my own uh, direct examination of myself. And, you know, I I was brought up, uh, I had a great dad, uh, I wouldn't trade him for the world, uh, but he was tough. And so he kind of instilled this notion in me that whatever I want to get has to be tough. It has to be, you know, I got I to gotta be aggressive. Um, and so I, I used that, and I guess it helped me in business originally, um, but it created in me uh, this grim determination to be a certain thing in this world rather than what I was. And it took me, you know, it took me the Dhamma to unravel that idea that just grim determination was going to, you know, somehow uh, prove myself to the world and prove that I was worthy to be in the world. And all of it is just nonsense, isn't it? If we're here in the world, we're, we're here to have a human life, to be human beings. What we add to that is completely up to us. But whether we're in Spain or Pennsylvania or Slovenia or on the ground in Ukraine right now, we can never be anything more than a six-property person. And so what are we going to bring to that six-property person today? Right now in this moment, I want to bring a conflict-free mind and then address the things that are around me, whether it's two wonderful students with smiling faces or the bombs I hear going off in the next town. Can I create a conflict-free mind no matter what's occurring? I'm not in Ukraine, so I don't know right now. I'd like to think I could, you know, but I can do it for, for my life right here and right now. And you, you both are doing that. You know, you're, you're developing this Dhamma. Tom, because it's a small class, I'll say this in front of Dominic. You have developed a Dhamma to a, a deeper extent than you're willing to give yourself credit for. Let me put it that way. Um, but you will, you know, as long as you keep listening to me, because I'm the one that knows. <laughs> as long as you keep practicing the Dhamma, you will. So, all right, let's, uh, we'll finish with metta as we always do. And again, as we go through this, just l- listen to these words and see if you're applying them to yourself and those that you're encountering, in- including those things that might come through the news today. The Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. 
whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to, to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you both for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.